Wow, what a wonderful song service that we have enjoyed. And we continue our worship by opening our scriptures to Acts chapter 15. While you're turning, let me review because it's been a couple of weeks. We looked uh, last week in a different passage of scripture, but we're recontinuing in Acts chapter 15. In the first 11 verses, we understand that, and give you a little background, that Paul and Barnabas had just returned from their first missionary journey, and now they've come back, and they're at Antioch in Syria. That was the church that had sent them out. It was really, even at this point, the, the, the center or the, the home base, if you will, for missions was actually shifting from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And uh, Paul and Barnabas had just come back and they were sharing how that God had saved the Gentiles and what God had done. It was a wonderful thing. And then we realized that from down in Jerusalem, they, there were people who, we call them Judaizers, traveled 300 miles to go up to Antioch. We find out later in Acts 15, 24, that the elders, uh, the rulers at the Jerusalem church were not the ones who sent them or authorized them. These guys, in a sense, were mavericks who on their own just decided that they needed to do this. And they came up to the church at Antioch to these Gentile believers and they said, it is necessary for you to go through the rite of circumcision and put yourself under the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had a strong disagreement with that. They contended with them. They refuted that. And then Paul and Barnabas and the church leadership at Antioch thought that this is a, a necessary thing, that they would send a representative group, including Paul and Barnabas, down to Jerusalem. Many of the apostles were still there in Jerusalem. Go back to the Jerusalem church and, and make a definitive doctrinal statement on salvation that would be for the benefit of all of the churches because even from the first missionary journey, there were a number of churches that were planted. Souls are being saved. The gospel is beginning to spread throughout the world. They needed this definitive statement. And so they come to Jerusalem. They're beginning to hammer this out. And there are some believing Pharisees that said, no, in, in order for people to have the blessing of Messiah, they must first go through the rite of circumcision, which is the first step in coming under the covenant of the law. They have to keep the ceremonial law as well as the moral law in order to be saved. Peter gets up and he says, hey, listen, 10 to 12 years ago, you remember how I was up on the rooftop and God gave me that vision of the sheep coming down and there were unclean and clean animals in that sheep. And he said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, not so, Lord, nothing unclean's ever touched these lips. And this happened three times and I realized that God was telling me something while I was musing on that, trying to figure out what it was God was telling me. Three Gentile men came and they said, hey, listen, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a God-fearer, has been sent by an angel given a message to come find you, Peter, Simon Peter, to come and proclaim the way of salvation to him more clearly. And Peter realized this is what God was telling him he was supposed to do. That's what this vision was all about. And what God was declaring then, and Peter even says it here in Acts 15, is that what God has called clean, don't you call unclean, thereby declaring that salvation is for all, Jew and Gentile, and that you can come to Christ and you can be saved. And Peter ends this statement in verse 11, and look at with me if you would, and he said, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. He puts this question to his Jewish brethren. Why would you put the yoke of the ceremonial law on our Gentile brethren 
which we even ourselves could not bear. We could not carry. And then the Bible says, and this is where we pick up our text this morning in verse 12. And the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. I want to stop and make this statement as we look at our first main point. And we only have two this morning. The first one is this. The gospel is sufficient. And that was already declared by Paul and Barnabas. Listen, salvation is not through the law. It is not through any ritual. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior who died and shed his blood and finished the work of redemption on the cross, was buried and rose again. And you call on him and by faith in the living Son of God and all that that implies, who he is and what he has done, you receive eternal life. You do not add works to that. Peter is stating the same thing. Look, look what God did through the did when I went to Cornelius to preach the, the gospel to them. God says, don't say that they are not worthy of eternal life. Call them unclean, not eligible for salvation. I went and I preached and, and they were saved. And, and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues glorifying God. It means it was understandable. How do you know they were glorifying God unless you could understand what they were saying? And the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles at the day of Pentecost is the same way he came upon these Gentile believers, Cornelius and his whole household. And that happened 10 years ago. And, and, and Peter's saying, listen, this is what God has said. Why are you guys coming up with this now? So here is an observation. When Satan cannot stop the advance of the gospel, he attacks the message itself. And that is at the key that is at the core of false religion. There are religions that say, oh yes, you must believe that Jesus is God and that he really did live on earth and never sinned and died and was buried and rose again. And you must put your faith in Jesus as long as you are in our denomination. And as long as you follow the teachings of our spiritual leaders, and as long as you do this work and that work and go through this ceremony and that ceremony, and, and in essence, they're doing the same thing as the Judaizers, saying that there is some work that you must add to salvation. Folks, the gospel is sufficient. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12, salvation does not come through a religious leader. It comes through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It has not come through good works. We're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Putting money in an offering plate can't save you. It is not, Titus says, by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So understand that no matter how sincere you are and how religious you are, that there is no human spiritual leader that can declare you to be righteous. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, can cleanse us from sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God the Father made Christ the Son to be sin for us, he who had known no sin, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. No priest, no pope, no religious leader can make you righteous. No human can absolve your sin. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin, and you must put your faith in Jesus Christ and only in him for eternal life. The gospel is sufficient. The blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is sufficient. The eyewitness of Paul and Barnabas is that this, God is saving the Gentiles apart from the law. Then look, if you would, with me in verse 13. 
And after they'd held their peace, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. This, by the way, this James is James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, leader at the church at Jerusalem by this time. Simeon, referring to Peter, hath declared how that God did first visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. We're going to look at that. It's a very interesting statement that James makes. There's, there's a play on words that every Jew would have picked up on in, in, in Jewish Christian, and it would have sounded very different to their ears from what they were used to hearing. And, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doth all these things known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. There's the, rest, there's the reference. Paul, Paul and Barnabas give the testimony. God is saving Gentiles apart from the law. Second of all, reference the testimony of Peter. James references Peter's testimony and says, look, God has saved Gentiles without the law in the past. And then the testimony of the Old Testament prophets is that there is, this has always been God's plan. And this is where James quotes from Amos chapter 9. I'm going to read the two verses. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. In that day, God says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Listen carefully, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. The implication is that through Jehovah dwelleth in a special man, though Jehovah has dwelt in a special manner with his chosen people, yet Gentiles would come seeking him directly and without becoming incorporated into the nation of Israel or under the Jewish law system. So it is very clear that the testimony of the old prophets, this has always been God's plan. That Gentiles and Jews could come directly to God by faith through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that when we were the enemies of God, Romans 5.10, when we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is sufficient folks we proclaim christ remember that though we want to be able to exercise godly wisdom in apologetics apologia is a greek word and in in the passage we are challenged as believers to be ready to give an answer that's the word apologia an answer for the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. We understand that the Holy Spirit who indwells us is the Holy Spirit who convicted us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, who illumined our understanding as God the Father drew us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day it transformed in our thinking from just some religious facts to a personal reality that Jesus Christ loves me. Perfect God, perfect man, died for me, rose again. He suffered and went through all that. He paid that awful price because he loves me. And he wants to give me everlasting life. You see, salvation is not about a bunch of rituals. 
It's not about reformation of your behavior and attitudes. It's about entering into a personal trust relationship with Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, who absolutely knows everything about you and loves you, and he wants to forgive you and give you his gift of everlasting life. That's what we believers are to proclaim. And we can trust that the same Holy Spirit that did that for us, the same drawing of the Father to the Son that God did in us, He can accomplish in the lives of those with whom we share the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring the gospel of peace. We have been called to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15. It is not, you might be witnesses for me in Acts 1, 8, as you shall be witnesses unto me. That is not God's plan only for the apostles, but for all of Christ's disciples, those who put their faith in him, who are followers of Jesus Christ. It is God's plan that we, together, be ambassadors for Christ's kingdom by proclaiming his gospel. And folks, you can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God to do that convincing, which you and I cannot do. The gospel is sufficient. Number two, the gospel is powerful. It changes how Christians live. Look at verses 19 and 20. Wherefore, this is James, and we'll look at verse 21 in a minute, but in verses 19 and 20, wherefore, my sentence is, this is, James is saying, this is my decision as the leader of the church at Jerusalem, that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, Gentile believers, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So here is what we distill this down to. The Gentile believers do not have to keep the law to be saved, so don't trouble the Gentiles. The word trouble means to cause hardship or difficulty by continually annoying people. Stop annoying Gentile believers by constantly harassing them for not observing Jewish ceremonial law, most of which they would have been ignorant. When we go back up to verse 11, and said so that we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Peter is speaking as a Jew. It would seem more accurate since salvation came through Israel for Peter to have said, they shall be saved even as we. Peter purposely under divine inspiration says, we shall be saved even as they. It highlights or makes even more clear that salvation for Jews and Gentiles is the same way. Remember, we talked about this last week. Just like the Gentiles are to turn from idols to serve the living God. Remember when Paul and Silas pre or Paul and Barnabas preached that at Iconium? When they wanted to bring animal sacrifice, they thought that they were Greek gods and they wanted to worship them as those gods. And Paul and Barnabas say, look, we beseech you, turn to the living God from these idols. Do you realize also that the Jews would have to turn from trusting in themselves and trying to keep the law and through their good works. They would have to turn from that 
and they'd have to place their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. What do you think John the Baptist, when he baptized with a baptism of repentance, what do you think he was talking about? Exactly that. Stop trusting in yourselves that you can be righteous. Stop trying to earn eternal life through trying to keep the law better than the guy across the street and trying to impress God with all your fasting and tithes and doing this and doing that so that somehow you can earn merit with God. Repent of that way of thinking. Turn from that and realize that your only hope is to come to seek God through Jesus Christ and believe on him. So the Jews had to turn from trusting in themselves. The Gentiles had to turn from trusting in these idols. But Gentile believers do not have to keep the law to be saved, so don't trouble them. But I find it really odd, do you? And I found this odd as I've read through the scriptures that James says in verse 19, don't trouble them about keeping the ceremonial law in order to be saved. But then he says in verse 20, but we do need to write them and tell them to observe these things, abstain from these things. So after saying, don't trouble the Gentile believers by constantly nitpicking them about the ceremonial law, it seems interesting James would suggest they write this letter to Gentile believers. Because when you look at it, pollution from idols, not eating things strangled or, th- or blood, seem on the surface to be ceremonial or moral law? Ceremonial. Well, mixed right in there is another word, fornication. Is that ceremonial or is that moral law? Moral law. So wait a minute, is James then saying that the ceremonial law carries the same moral weight as the moral law. And so is he really saying you've got to observe these things because when you're saved, you repent of sin. Now, you don't stop sinning in order to be saved, but you turn from your sin and you're cleansed from your sin. It gets a little confusing, doesn't it? Or what is, 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 is James saying that fornication is not a moral sin is it just a ceremonial thing well obviously the whole council of scripture goes against that we know fornication is that is, is immoral it breaks god's moral law so then is this a christian liberty issue and by that i mean and i've read some commentators on this who say well what this is is james is writing to the gentiles and saying listen Though you are not under the law of commandment, under the Jewish law, the ceremonial law, you need to live operating within the law of love. And out of consideration for your Jewish brethren, you need to observe these things. You're going to make it really hard on the Jewish Christians to be able to fellowship with you or worship God in an undistracted way if you are doing these things. But wait a minute, what about fornication? Is that not always prohibited? That's more than just the law of love. So what is it that James is saying here? Because we know that he's saying, stop troubling Gentile believers. We know that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is sufficient. Stop nitpicking and annoying them that they have to keep the ceremonial law or that they would have to come under the covenant of the law by going through circumcision and then observing all the ceremonial law. That's not true. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Is this something he's saying you have to do if you're going to keep staying saved? No. Jesus said, 
in John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. John says in John 3, 36, he that hath the Son hath everlasting life. Jesus said in John 3, 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Folks, I have eternal life. I am no longer condemned. I don't keep myself saved. I put my faith in Jesus Christ to cleanse me, to save my soul, and I trust him to keep me until the day of the fulfillment of the promise of my full salvation. So what is James talking about here? I believe that the answer is one thing that they are to abstain from, and that these are four elements of this one thing. And I believe that this one thing is part of God's moral law. And I trust that even the Spirit of God will bring back to your thinking a little bit about what we were looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as Paul writes to the Corinthian church made of Jews and Gentiles, many Gentiles. He said, look, you cannot take the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Idol worship is demonic. When they sacrifice to these false gods, they are not sacrificing to the one true God. Don't deceive yourselves or fool yourself into thinking that you can continue in idol worship. Now, these four elements, if we look at them, look back at verse 20. Pollution of idols, fornication, things strangled, and from blood. These are four elements of idolatrous festivals or feasts. So the pollution of idols is talking uh, about really the pollution of the mind and the confusion of the mind in idol worship. Okay? So the idea is you need to understand that it is, it is polluted to think that there are many gods. There's only one God expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there is one God. I am that I am. Jehovah God, there is one true God. It is a pollution and a confusion to think that there are legitimate other gods. So you need to abstain from that way of thinking. But in these festivals, because it was a part of their culture, and by the way, in many parts of the world, their religion is ingrained into the, their cultural traditions and practices. These Gentiles had grown up going to these festivals. Kind of like, you know, maybe you go to the county fair or something like that. And I'm not saying that's the same as an idolatrous festival, all right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going to a fair, all right? The county fair or something like that. I'm just kind of using that as a way of illustration to make it a little familiar that, uh, that that was just something they grew up doing. So these Gentiles, they've turned to, to God from these idols. They put their faith in Jesus Christ as the one true God. But their whole culture and the mindset around them and a lot of traditions and cultural things that happened would have been kind of like we go to county fairs and stuff like that. They wouldn't have thought anything about it. And so James is writing to these Gentile believers saying you need to abstain from idol worship. Is idol worship a, a moral issue? Yes. yes, it is. Is it sin against God? Absolutely. Look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 24 and 5. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. In Exodus 34 and verse 14, thou shalt worship no other God. So you see, it is entirely likely and possible for a Jewish believer who had all their life been involved in idol festivals and feasts to, out of ignorance, 
participate as if it was a part of their normal life. Idolatry was an ingrained feature of their culture. So you say, all right, so I know about the pollute, the, 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 but what about the fornication? Oh, the pollution of idols. Well, it's very well documented in archaeology and in history, ancient history, that a regular part of pagan worship of false gods was they had temple prostitutes and they would commit sexual immorality as part of their expression of worship to these false gods. Many of these false gods were like gods of fertility and stuff like that. And so that was a normal part. So when he's talking about abstaining for fornication, he's talking within the context of idol worship here. So the pollution of idols. Don't think there are many gods. There's only one true God. Give that no legitimacy in your thinking. There should be no respect paid to a false god because it's not a god. That's a demon under the enemy, Satan. Nor commit fornication. Don't be involved in this. There is, this is not an exception clause because it is supposedly an expression of worship, folks. You know what? There's a lot that goes on in a lot of churches in our countries that I believe is displeasing to God, but it's excused as worship. I won't go any farther. If you have questions about that, I'm glad to talk to you personally about it. And then if you look at things strangled and things blood, those are actually kind of two steps of the same thing. Often what they would do as part of in these festivals is they would take an animal and they would strangle it till it's dead and then they would pierce it and then they would drink the blood. Sorry, that's what they would do. And that was part of their worship at these festivals. And so though Gentiles... We're not to trouble them. Gentiles are saved apart from the law because the gospel is sufficient. Gentile believers need to live like Christians and must be sure not to live like pagans. No Jew would listen to the gospel witness if Gentile believers continued to be involved in idolatry. 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, including participating in idolatrous festivals. Behold, all things are become new. Now you worship the one true and living God. We worship him in reverence and in fear. We worship him with joy and in peace. We worship according to the dictates of the scripture. But you know, I wonder how many unsaved people have been turned off to the gospel by the involvement of a professing Christian in things that they would describe as things Christians don't do. Or that's not acting like a Christian. You know, there are certain things that you participate in, whether it is an event that you go to, or whether it's an activity you engage in, or whether it's a conversation that you are an active part of that is displeasing to God. It is amazing to me how many unbelievers know if you're a Christian? People in your neighborhood, people at work, people in your community that know that you're a Christian. And isn't it amazing how unsafe people have this uncanny knowledge of what a Christian should be like? They don't live like it, right? And that's part of, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. So I'm, you know, so I'm going to keep doing this. In other words, instead of repenting of my rebellion against God and realizing my need for salvation and receiving eternal life through Jesus Christ, well, I'm just going to be real. And I, what they're saying is I'm a wicked, rebellious sinner, and I'm going to keep living in my sin. 
right? But I wonder how many of them have looked at Christians. And certainly, none of us are perfect, and we never claim to be perfect. But if you use, well, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven as an excuse for ungodly living. And as your testimony, because of what you've participated in, whether by conversation, whether an event, or by actions, brought discredit to the name you're supposed to represent, the name of Jesus Christ, if you turned away people from the gospel, it behooves us to be so careful. I'll give you this little, this just a little kind of a silly illustration of this. Whether this is true or not, I, I'm not sure. Right? I haven't really fact-checked it. So we're just going to say that this was something that was created in somebody's imagination. All right? But there's this little story about this car that's driving very erratically around town, endangering people, honking the horn, shaking the fist out the window, driving recklessly, speeding, all this stuff, blowing through a stop sign, and there's a police officer that's in hot pursuit of this car, finally pulls it over. And uh, the police officer goes up to the window, knocks on the window, lady rolls down the window, she's still kind of riding upset, he says, man, can I see your driver's license and registration? She grabs the gun box and she hands it to him. She goes, oh, I need to check this out. He goes back and he comes back and he says, well, ma'am, um, I, uh, I pulled you over because I thought your car was stolen. And she says, what in the world made you think my car was stolen? He says, well, I followed you for a little ways and I saw the way you were driving and the way you were responding to other drivers and I saw a Christian fish symbol on your car. <laughs> And I thought, certainly no Christian would act like that. So I pulled you over because I thought the car was stolen. Ooh. <laughs> That's only on a small scale. But there are sometimes very serious times when we surrender to our flesh in ungodly attitudes, actions, and activities, in conversations. And we hurt our ability to share the gospel. What a motivation to live a holy life that we would not in any way hinder the gospel message in anybody else's life. And that's one of the things I believe why James says to write to these Gentile believers, look, it is a moral thing. You need to abstain from idol worship. But realize this, when God saves you, he makes you a new creation. You are to be different supernaturally different and that difference ought to be an accurate advertisement reflection and attraction to the gospel i wonder how many people also mistakenly believed that they must add to christ's sacrifice on the cross in order to receive eternal life there are some churches some denominations some religious leaders that say well jesus on the cross earned everything necessary for forgiveness and sanctification. He earned that grace through his sacrifice. But now you have to go through this ritual in order to receive that merit. And it comes over time as you keep giving money to our church and observing these ritualistic practices, and you just get a little bit more and a little bit more of that grace as you go on and, oh, and, and by the way, um, our leader says that this is what the word of God really means, or 
he knows this is what the word of God used to say, but he's changing that. Now the word of God says this. Now you need to believe this. Disregard that. Folks, that's false teaching. And I wonder how many people have mistakenly thought, I need to add some work, some ritual, some observance to faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. My friend, may I plead with you to turn from trusting in your good works because really that's what it's doing. You're saying that Jesus Christ is a liar because Jesus said on the cross before he yielded up the ghost, it is finished. The price was paid in full. The once for all sacrifice was complete and only Jesus could be that sacrifice and only Jesus could give that sacrifice and as our great high priest and as the Lamb of God, he did it. And he rose again. And the message that he gave to the apostles so clearly and the message repeated throughout the epistles is that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. Trust him. And then I wonder what we who are saved need God to change in us so that we can be more faithful stewards and authentic ambassadors for his eternal kingdom. May God give us the grace in just a few moments as we are listening to the Holy Spirit to have humble hearts that are receptive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it may be that God needs to change in you to make you a more authentic ambassador of the gospel. I know what God's working on in me. I don't know what it may be in your life, whether you are thinking you have to add some good works or some other activity to what Jesus did in his sacrifice. So you believe in Jesus, but you also have to do this and that. But my faith is only in Jesus Christ, and that's based solely on the word of God. I would invite you to put your faith only in Jesus Christ. You need to repent, just like the Jews did. The Jews believed that they had to observe the law and do all these good works and establish their own righteousness. In essence, that... that statement of add Jesus and to your good works won't work. You need to repent of that and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If there is some activity, is there some event, if there's something that you've just said, well, that's a part of the culture, but you realize the Holy Spirit is saying that is a hindrance to your testimony for the sake of the gospel, would you be willing to surrender that to the Lord this morning? Let's bow our heads for prayer. I am going to give an invitation in a moment, so let me explain that for those of you who are our guests, or if you're just new to Berea and haven't been coming along. In a couple of minutes, our associate pastors will be at the back of the auditorium, and we'll stand with our heads bowed, and our pianist will play a hymn quietly. I would invite you, if you don't know for sure where your soul would spend eternity, but you're concerned about that and you would like help, just to make your way to the back to one of our pastors. They will pair you up with a Bible counselor who will take you to a quiet place, sit down with the Bible, and in just a few minutes, show you the way of salvation. Just basically review what I've been sharing with you this morning. And you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and leave here, having received God's forgiveness of your sin, knowing that you now possess and will forever possess everlasting life. So brother or sister in Christ, maybe there's something God has spoken to your heart about you say, you know what, I know that this has become ingrained in my life. 
and uh, I want God's help. You don't confess your sin to man, you only confess your sin to God, but you know what I do find in the scriptures is that believers who are struggling with something should make themselves accountable to another believer who can pray for them and can, can encourage them and can help them to be faithful. If that is your need as a believer this morning, I'd encourage you just to go to the back and let one of the pastors know that, hey, I'm struggling with something. I'd just like someone to pray with me as I get this right with God and then set up some accountability. Maybe you say, I really need some counseling. This has become ingrained in my life and I'd like some biblical counsel or help. Or maybe you just have a question that you would like to answer. You can go back to one of our pastors and get that help this morning. Let's pray and then we'll stand with our heads bowed and then you are welcome to respond to our invitation. Our Father... Thank you that the gospel is sufficient. We don't have to go under the law of Moses. We don't have to add any work to salvation. It is all of you. All we can do is like a drowning victim reach out by faith and accept your rescue. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, may your Holy Spirit work in their hearts as you have been working in my heart that we would identify through the help of your Holy Spirit where our lives are being hindered from being as effective ambassadors as we could be for you. May we willingly lay those things aside even if they're not a sin, but Lord, if it is sin, may we confess it and forsake it and would you in your grace strengthen us and change us. We ask your help now in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed, but would you stand as our pianist begins to play? Would you respond?